Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I am your host Simon Wams here is uh, today. One of our wonderful writers, Arnaldo, has written me a script. The kidnapping of General Dozier, Marxist terrorist versus the psychics and the actual police. This sounds like it's going to be a bit of a wild ride. Thank you, Arnaldo, for uh, putting it together, as always. Uh, not as always. There's a few writers for this channel, actually. Arnaldo is one of them. But I'm always here, and Jen is always adding in the uh, the images, the audio, all that wonderful uh, video editory stuff. And uh, yeah, it's a cold read if you're new here. I've never read this before. We're going to read it together now and explore. Let's just get into it, shall we? It's been 42 days since their guest has arrived, and not much has changed. He is still inside the tent, planted in the middle of their flat. It's cold outside, and paint is peeling off the walls. There is not much else to see, not much else to do, but wait. But Amelia feels that today, something is different. The usual symphony of passing traffic, car horns and lively chatter percolating in from the windows, it has suddenly stopped. It's been drowned by an intense cacophony of heavy building machinery. Amelia and the others exchange glances and peer outside the windows. One of her companions notices something. He says there's something strange going on. Has the day finally arrived? Are they about to attack? Amelia now considers the entrance door to their flat. Did she hear something? A faint breath, a shoe squeaking on the floor. Slowly, she approaches the door. It's just five paces now before she can reach the handle. Four, three, two. I love these cold intros. Like, uh, cold, cold opens? What do they call them? You know, like, uh, the, the, the show I always think of is House, House MD. And it's always like the intro scene is sets everything up. And I don't know, I just like it. One week to Christmas. It's one week before Christmas, 1981, the 17th of December, to be precise. 50-year-old U.S. Army Brigadier General James Lee Dozier, I think because he's American, right? Here's someone called Brian Dozier in my pronunciation dictionary. Brian Dozier. Brian Dozier. Can you guys hear that? That's where I look things up. And uh, so that's what the pronunciation we're going to go with today. And his wife, Judy, were enjoying a quiet afternoon in their apartment in Verona, a city in the Venetia region, northeastern Italy. Verona is known to tourists worldwide thanks to its arena, a cathedral of open-air opera performances. Oh, thanks to Juliet's Balcony. This is, in fact, where William Shakespeare set his immortal tragedy, the one in which two teenagers barely get to know each other before committing the most preventable suicide in literature. Yeah, it's really clever, though. I do like Shakespeare, which I suppose is not like a super controversial statement. Well done, Simon. It's literally Shakespeare. Um, it's, it's pretty good. And I enjoyed acting like in the past. I think I mentioned this before. Loved doing theatre as a kid and like through, uh, through school and liked being in Shakespeare. It's good stuff. But in the early 1980s, Verona was also home to the headquarters of LandSouth, or NATO's Allied Land Forces Southern Europe. This is where General Dozier was stationed, serving as Chief of Staff. At about 5pm on 17th of December, Judy Dozier answered the door. Who had rung the doorbell? Well, it was two plumbers. Italian, of course, both with moustaches, one big and tall and the other shorter. <laughs> Wait, literally Mario and... Uh... 
Uh, he's the other one, the green one. Luigi! Luigi? Luigi! Mario! Mario! Luigi! I will, of course, give a few seconds for the inevitable Mario and Luigi jokes. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, uh, sorry, I don't know. And then he writes, done, question mark. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. Let's move on. Mario and Luigi told the Dogers that a leak had been reported in the apartment downstairs, and they were there to identify the faulty plumbing. As Judy moved to the kitchen to fix dinner, James showed them rounds, conversing in Italian. The general was a good linguist, but he wasn't yet fully fluent in the language. As Mario and Luigi kept using a word he didn't know, he asked them to follow him into the kitchen where he kept his dictionary. Oh no, I know what this word's gonna be. <laughs> Because the title of this episode is the kidnapping of this dude, right? He's going to look up that word and it's going to be kidnapping. And he's going to be like, maybe I miss it. <laughs> As he leaned over the dining room table to consult the dictionary, the drama began. Judy recalled seeing the tall plumber pulling out a strange looking implement from his tool bag. She realized too late it was a handgun with a silencer. Luigi quickly raised his gun and pistol whipped Doja, who spun around and immediately tried to fight back, but the larger opponent overpowered him and threw him onto the floor in the hallway. In the meantime, Mario had grabbed Judy, pointed a gun against her head, and forced her to kneel. This is when the general realized that it wasn't a good idea to continue the fight. The Dogers were tied up with chains and duct tape, handcuffed and gagged. Judy was also blindfolded and locked inside the utility room. The two plumbers then opened the entrance door, letting into accomplices who immediately started ransacking the flat, flat, collecting any documents that they could lay their hands on. The general was then lifted by the two plumbers and placed inside a small trunk. The team of four kidnappers carried the trunk downstairs, loaded it onto a rented van, and drove off towards a parking garage. There the captors were met by three accomplices who transferred the trunk to a hatchback sedan. While the general was driven to an uncertain fate by his mysterious foes, he remained calm and collected. Back in the utility room, Judy was equally successful in stemming the tide of panic. Little by little, she managed to drag herself to the washing machine. She freed her hands and legs from the chains binding her and started kicking the appliance until some neighbors called the police. Judy was freed at around 9 p.m. that night and immediately reported her husband's kidnapping. But who could have been so brazen to have ducked a U.S. Army general. I don't know, but they got a lot of people involved. When the four people and then another three? That's a lot of people to get involved in your crimes. The Red Brigades the captors drove their prisoner to a safe house in Padua, about 96 kilometers west of Verona. When they arrived, they stripped the general of his clothes and ordered him to wear a tracksuit. Then they revealed their identity. General Dozier had been captured by the Venetia Regional, Regional Column of the Red Brigades. Do you ever have those things in history where you're like, I feel like I should know about this? All the time, man. Like every. Like a general being kidnapped and like Italian Red Brigades? In the 1980s? 1980s? I'm so dim. 1981? What was going on? Cold War? That's about it. I mean, that's about it. It's fairly major. But uh, what's this got to do with anything? What? Okay. The name might ring a bell with those acquainted with Italy's years of lead. Two decades of politically motivated violence which claimed the lives of more than 200 citizens slain by far-right and far-left terrorists. The Red Brigades belonged to the latter faction, and in years of honorable careers, they would kill more than 80 journalists, politicians, magistrates, and police officers. <laughs> oh, now they left me a note there being like, this is sarcasm. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> They officially formed on October 20, 1970, driven by Marxist-Leninist ideology, they advocated for the creation of a revolutionary state. Their end goal was to separate the Italian government from its Western allies and eventually join 
the Soviet bloc. The Red Brigade's early actions consisted of destroying vehicles of Union leaders and factory equipment, but in March of 1972, they graduated to kidnappings and assassinations. I mean, I, just like wanting to leave, uh, wanting to join the Soviet bloc is a bit weird. Like, I understand communism. I, I think, I don't think communism's the right way to go. I think, I don't honestly think capitalism is the right way to go. We don't have a perfect system. But joining the Soviet bloc is a bit of a weird one. Must have the precious. I'll be like, if we're going to do communism, how about we just do it ourselves? Why do we need to be under the Soviets' thumbs? Like, do we don't need to join them. Like, Cuba was separate. Vietnam was separate. China's separate. Why join the Soviet bloc? That just sounds like you're, like, volunteering to be under another country's thumb. Why do that? Maybe there's a good reason. I just don't know enough about this period of history, apparently. Or maybe these uh, far-left terrorists didn't really know their Or so possible. In 1974, the brigades formed their strategic directorate, or SD, which sanctioned their military-like structure. A leading executive committee was to oversee urban and regional columns, which in turn managed smaller units called fronts. The structure enabled the SD to cascade down their strategies, but each column and front was rigidly compartmentalized. If one of them fell to the authorities, investigators could not climb up the chain of command. This is uh, the cell structure, right? This is how terrorist cells work. They're all uh, individuals, so they can't, you know, if you crack one, you don't crack them all. Uh, in 1975, the SD issued a resolution which defined the Reg Brigade's objectives to carry out a concentrated strike against the heart of the state because the state is an imperious collection of multinational corporations. <laughs> the pinnacle of the nefarious activities was reached on March the 16th, 1978, with the abduction of former Prime Minister Aldo Moro. His chauffeur and five escorting policemen were killed in the action. You guys are terrorists! Ironically, Morrow was brokering a deal to form a coalition government, bringing together the Christian, Democrat De Christian Democrats and the Communist Party. Talk of bad timing. Yeah, but the Communist Party is not going to be far enough left for these guys. They're going to be like, yo, we don't want the Communist Party. That's, the, that's, that's a good, good direction. Mr. Morrow was held captive for 55 days, during which time the Red Brigades tried to negotiate the release of 16 brigade members from prison, but authorities refused to engage in dialogue with terrorists. Eventually, Morrow was subjected to the so-called proletarian trial, which resulted in a death sentence. Oh my god. These guys are proper terrorists. Red Brigade leader Mario Moretti shot the politician 11 times. His body was found dumped inside a Renault 4 on the 9th of May 1978. This is terrible. He was the former Prime Minister of Italy. That's crazy. The Red Brigades had enjoyed a certain degree of popularity until then among factory workers, trade unions, and student groups. But the murder of Aldo Moro turns much of the left-wing support against them, and the ensuing reaction of the security forces almost brought them to their knees. It was in this context in 1981 the Venetia Column decided to plan another spectacular action, to strike at capitalism and imperialism certainly, but also to show that they were still a force to be reckoned with. One October morning, a meeting was convened by the Column leader and Antonio Savasta, known by his battle name, Emilio. That is a terrorist name. He's a terrorist. The most vocal participant was Barbara Balzerani. She was known as Sarah. From now on, I'll stick to the battle names for all terrorists involved to prevent Simon from terminally twisting his tongue. 
thank you. Sarah identified their chief enemies as the United States, who had been steadily militarizing the Italian peninsula with their bases. Emilio agreed Americans were the true puppet masters of the Italian state, which was nothing more than a hetero-directed pseudo-democracy. The column agreed they had to send a strong message to the Americans and to NATO. They had to kidnap a high-ranking U.S. officer. Their first pick was Air Force General William Cooney, but after tailing him for days, they found he was too unpredictable in his movements and he had a permanent escort. They then found the perfect target, James Lee Dozier, a man of consistent habits with no protection whatsoever. Emilio proceeded to assign the roles. He and Danielle would play the pub plumbers who raid the Dozier's home. Fabrizio and Rolando were to follow suit to search the place for sensitive documents. Another team of three, including one Martina, would drive the captive to a safe house, a flat rented in Padua by another member, Emilia. That's Emilia with an A at the end, not to be confused with Emilo with an O at the end. The former is a she, the latter is a he. It's a bit confusing, I know, but ultimately, I didn't get to name my characters. <laughs> Let me introduce now a small humanizing detail. Martina the Transporter and Emilio the Ringleader have been lovers in the past. After they had split, Martina had started going out with Rolando the Ransacker. Wait, <laughs> why do we have to humanize the terrorists? <laughs> They're terrorists. No one cares. And it seems that this newly formed couple had no qualms about cavorting frequently under Emilio's nose, sometimes even making out in the car while staking out or shadowing their targets. During the weeks of cohabitation in the Padua flat, Emilio would be subjected to the noise of the two loudly making love in the room nearby. He was not amused, but somehow he kept his cool. Besides amorous congress, plenty of other interesting things took place at Emilia's flat that winter, so let us proceed in order. Hard Rock and a Deck of Cards since day one of the kidnapping, James Dozier was kept inside a tent erected in the middle of the safe flat. The inside of the tent was lit by a single white bulb, which was switched every 12 hours with a blue one. This was meant to indicate the passage of time to Dozier and to single sig signal when it was time for bed. <laughs> it's quite a weird situation to find yourself in. I've been kidnapped and put inside a tent in a flat. Every 12 hours, they make me go to sleep. I don't know who they think sleeps for 12 hours, but okie dokie. <laughs> Speaking of which, this was a simple metal bunk to which Dozer was chained by his left ankle and right wrist, but the chain was long enough to allow the captive to stretch his limbs and use a chemical toilet. Beside that, there wasn't much for the general to do to while away time, and after some insistence, the brigade members brought in some books, 1984 by George Orwell among them. <laughs> He also was given a deck of cards, which Dozier used for endless games of solitaire. Later, he developed a one-man version of Bridge. <laughs> you gotta be seriously bored. You're like, I've, I'm done with solitaire. I have to invent my own card game. Kudos, as this is one of the brainiest and most complicated card games ever invented. I'm more of an Uno man myself. My grandma plays Bridge. I, in my mind, Bridge is like the oldest old person activity ever. And she, I mean, now she's way too old and I don't think she can pro she probably can't play bridge anymore. But she used to go to bridge all the time and she'd play with all her old friends. She was obsessed with bridge. In general, the captive was well fed and never really mistreated, except for one detail. To prevent him from hearing their conversations, the terrorists forced him to wear headphones at all times. For 20 hours a day, they would blast his ears with loud hard rock records. So, sitting in a stuffy room wearing a musty tracksuit and listening to ACDC the whole day, this pretty much describes most of my teenage years, and I would do it over again. But I can understand how that would be distressing for a 50-year-old officer. After a while, he couldn't take it any longer, and he asked for some classical music. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I like rock music. Um, 
But I couldn't listen to it 20 hours a day. And I definitely couldn't listen to it loud 20 hours a day. I'd go insane. I would much... Like, long-term listening, I would probably opt for classical or... I don't know, like piano or something. Something chill. Jazz. Oh, yeah, jazz. I'll just go for jazz. Jazz is, I don't know, it's easy. It's easy to listen to. On the rare occasion in which the captors removed the headset, Doja was subjected to lengthy interrogation sessions. This happened seven times in total. The Red Brigades questioned the general about the presence of U.S. armed forces in Europe, NATO's strategies, and its influence on the heterodirected pseudo-democracy that was the Italian state. Doja, <laughs> Doja was these names people give. Doja was happy to cooperate to a certain extent, but he never revealed any details that were not in the public domain. If the interrogators tried to push him towards more sensitive topics, he politely declined to respond, which the terrorists politely accepted. <laughs> These terrorists are weird. These terrorists are weird. They're horrible people. They killed that prime minister. They shot him 11 times. And uh, they, they are true terrorists. But they also seem quite compassionate towards him, which is weird. And we humanized them earlier about their weird internal relationships. And I now see why Arnaldo did it, because he's like, see them as people too, Simon. And I guess I am seeing them as people too. They seem to be like, I don't know, they feel a bit um, like edgy. You know, I feel like they, they think they're edgy. That's the vibe I'm getting from them. They don't seem like, you know, true, you know, like Al-Qaeda style terrorism. You know, like scary terrorism. And these guys are scary terrorists, but they're not Al-Qaeda scary. They're more like edgy teenager scary. As per established custom, the Red Brigades had claimed authorship of the kidnapping by phoning the Ansa Press Agency on the 23rd of December, and within two weeks, Emilio and his comrades issued two communiques stating their intended goals. Curiously, no mention was made of any demand or ransom for the general's release, which greatly worried the authorities and his relatives. Their messages instead contained violent anti-NATO and anti-American messages referring to Doja as a pig. They also called for uniting all European revolutionary groups into a single movement in the fight against American imperialism. They singled out the IRA, the Basque Outfit, ETA, and the German Red Army Faction, or RAF. The CIA analysis issued on the 31st of December 1981 seemed that the kidnapping might likely end with the assassination of the general. Such a deed would generate a massive governmental reaction with suspension of civil liberties. This could result in a spontaneous popular uprising which could play into the Red Brigade's hands. I feel like messing with the CIA or messing with the Americans as like, isn't that, was it in Narcos? And I'm not sure if this, how much of this is true because I'm misremembering a fictionalized TV show. But didn't the, didn't one of those drug gangs kill uh, someone in the DEA in Mexico? And then basically, or the CIA or something, and basically the CIA was just like, all right, game on, chaps. And they just laid waste to the drug gangs. Just went in like the military and just killed them all. And from that point on, it was like, all right, we don't touch CIA or DEA. Then they were, and that's why they were like untouchable in that first season of Narcos or whatever, because it was just like the response was just so massively disproportional that they were like, okay, we get it, we get it. You're a big scary government, which I thought was so cool, but I'm not sure if that is if I'm remembering that right. However, the CIA also considered that senior members of the Strategic Directorate, or the SD, may oppose the assassination. It would lead to the loss of popular support, as was with the case of Aldo Moro. This analysis hinted at a rift between the Venetia Column and other members of the organization. Further communiques followed in January, stating that the trial of NATO with the capture of the Yankee pig Doja is simply one part of an overall revolutionary battle. 
The last message on the 16th of January contained a threat to journalists accused of serving the bourgeois imperialist information media. Again, it's like it does feel like edgy teenager, doesn't it? I wonder if they would have had the same grudge against YouTubers and podcasters with a declared love of capitalism. Honestly, probably. My declared love of capitalism is just rational. Like, I don't think, and I don't think capitalism is that that great. I just think it's pro like capitalism can be a total piece of. Shit. It really can. Like at the highest levels of like giant companies and exploited workers and even beyond exploited workers but proper exploitation where it's like yo you're making all your stuff in a sweatshop halfway around the world and distancing yourself from it by being like well it's not really our sweatshop they just make stuff for someone else who we buy stuff off and it's like yeah but it's ultimately you're buying it aren't you from like child labor and slave labor and all of slave labor in this stuff and i'm like that is capitalism is not right but also it's better than alternatives that we currently i'd love to live in some star trek utopia frankly and that's kind of socialist um but i just don't think that's really realistic in the near term look don't how's that phrase go don't hate the player hate the game <laughs> i'm just like okay capitalism's what we have guess that's what i'm working with i'm not a revolutionary one month uh, also i wouldn't be a revolutionary for like communism or socialism or something so, like i don't know this isn't a politics show i don't even know what my politics are let's just carry on one month had passed since the abduction and still emilio and his friends made no demands for the release of the general was he like aldo moral headed towards a proletarian trial and summary execution the hunt While General Dozier was in captivity, authorities on both sides of the Atlantic pulled at all stops to find him while he was still alive. The CIA and the FBI deployed a number of agents and consultants to Italy to help local police forces with the search. But there was the issue of territoriality. U.S. agents could advise their Italian counterparts but could not participate in field activities such as searches, arrests, or interrogations. Yeah, unlike what every spy movie will ever tell you. That's, there's a couple of things that or, they always seem to get wrong. It's like the authority of one country's police officers or like agents in another country is not that big. And also uh, the other one is like CIA operating on American soil, which I believe is illegal. And like every show where the CIA is like, I swear half that shit is going on in America. And you're like, wait, this isn't allowed there. No, isn't that what the FBI is there for? Um, I, I don't know. I found that fun. And then it ruined like every spy movie for me because I'm like, it wouldn't be like that. I'm sorry I ruined it for you. The Armed Forces' own intelligence agency, the DIA, took a different approach. They would search for the general remotely and discreetly, deploying an operative with a special set of skills which would not step on the Italian's toes. <laughs> What's that guy from the, from Taken? <laughs> they deployed Liam Neeson. No, they didn't. They deployed Mr. Joe Moneagle. Possibly, actually, uh, real-life Liam Nielsen. Note, I thought this name was pronounced Mr. Moneagle, as in the bird. It turns out it's more like Mr. Monagle. Okay, well, from now on, <laughs> yeah, I also pronounce him Moneagle. Moneagle! Had this taken place in 2022, you may have guessed that McGonagall, McGonagall, you may have guessed that, look, Eagle Dude, okay? Eagle Dude was some kind of top hacker, or maybe a drone pilot, but this was 1982, and Mr. Monagle was actually, oh my, oh yeah, this is about psychics. What's this episode called? Marxist terrorists versus psychics and the actual police. Oh no! <laughs> what are you up to? This is actually paid for by the government. They did think this was real, didn't they? There was like that MK Ultra, 
which I pronounced McUltra in a video once. People were like, ah, <laughs> McUltra, what are you done? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, they used to believe in this stuff and the CIA did all sorts of like weird psychic experiments. There's the Stargate project, like the remote viewing thing that the CIA put tons of money into. It's like, what are you up to? It's not real. How are you not getting what a psychic is? I can hear the swish of Simon's Occam's razor aiming at my jugular, so I'll keep this section as grounded as possible. Since the late 1960s, the DIA had been running a program called Grill Flame, also known as Sunstreak and Centerlane. The CIA had a similar project called Inscom and later Scanate. And all these are uh, 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 And all these initiatives fell under the umbrella of the Stargate project, I told you. Not such a small brain after all. And their aim was to evaluate and exploit controlled remote viewing as an intelligence-gathering tool. The program had been initiated following reports of Soviet investigations into psychic phenomena. So, Grill Flame psychic operatives, such as Eagle Dude, were expected to use remote viewing techniques to locate Soviet missile installations, or in this case, kidnapped allies. I see him. He's in a tent. In a flat. And they'll be like, he's lying in a tent in a flat. Is he in a tent or is he in a flat? He's in a tent in a flat. There's a blue light. Oh, man, what bullshit. And it's surprisingly accurate. But that's not what happens, of course, because it's not going to be accurate because psychics aren't real. Monagall was given a photo of Dozier and asked to identify his prison. By concentrating on the photo of the general, the psychic was able to visualize a series of locations, first vague, then more precise. He was first struck by precise impressions of Italy's northeastern coastline. Feeling that he was on the right track, he began moving inland. Or rather, he was able to visualize the Venetia Island as if he was flying over it. But I'll now hand over to the man himself. Here we go. Quote, I suddenly found myself hovering directly over a fairly large town not far from the coast. I moved closer to the ground and began to pick out roadways and buildings. I followed the roads and eventually found myself near a small central plaza across from some kind of fountain and picked up the smells of a butcher shop. I got an image of a very large apartment building and settled in on the second floor. I came out of the session knowing that I could pretty much replicate the images and streets that I had seen. The psychic later declared, receiving a clear image of the general held in chains inside an apartment. Then he drafted a map which not only identified Padua as the city where Doja was held, but pinpointed the road where the terrorist's prison was located. No, he didn't. What? There's got to be there's a, there's there's a rational explanation for this. There always is, because otherwise, this would be a thing to this day. <laughs> Psychics would be extremely in demand at the CIA, wouldn't they? And they're not, as far as we know. <laughs> they're not. They're not. That was a joke. They're not. McGonagall's intelligence was sent to his superiors, then to their superiors, and so on. <laughs> I would have loved to tell you that this story ended up in a confrontation between Marxist terrorists armed with Kalashnikovs and psychics shooting telekinetic blasts from their foreheads. It would have made excellent anime. Exterior. Day. On top of a skyscraper. The arena of Verona, the Eiffel Tower, and Mount Fuji are visible in the background. Marxist terrorist leader. Prepare to eat lead, you freak of nature. Psychic. Chuckles. <laughs> Arnaldo, have you written me half a page of a screenplay? Let's go. Ha! <laughs> you will soon stop underestimating my powers, Melia-san. A blue light, a light blue halo forms above his head, erupting into a flame. Marxist terrorist leader. <gasps> That's not possible! Dialectical materialism does not allow for such manifestations of the spirit. Prepare to meet your maker, who does not exist. Psychic shoots blast mental energy and screams. Marxist terrorist leader opens fire and screams. 
Other terrorists, including terrorist girl in school uniform, open fire and scream. Everybody screams. Arnaldo, we are, you are, you are as off track with your writing as I get with my rants, mate. Now, if we retreat from silliness for a second, we could focus on the investigations carried out by the Italian police. No psychics involved, just plain old solid police work. How boring. <laughs> the lead investigator was Deputy Questor and Berto Imprompter. Uh, working with the Anti-Terrorism Bureau of the State Police. A deputy quester would roughly correspond to a major in a military environment. Improta created a core team of investigators and operatives. The tip of the spear was the NOCS, a special operations tactical unit similar to SWAT teams. Improta's team combed the Venetia region, grilling anybody suspected of being a member, supporter, or sympathizer of the Red Brigade. He reasoned that A, the terrorist commando guarding Doja would seldom leave the prison, but B, they would need logistical support, which may come from C, a local sympathizer, not a hardened fighter, likely to talk if brought into custody. Finally, he developed a hunch that other columns outside of Venetia may have provided help or manpower to the core terrorist squad. So, he obtained authorization to mobilize 6,000 officers who carried out massive roundups in the cities with major Red Brigade presences Milan, Turin, Naples, Genoa, and Rome. The investigations initially did not gather any clue of note in the main case, but they did score some important victories along the way. At the end of December, Improta's team found an impressive weapons cache belonging to the Venetian Column. Pump-action shotguns, submarine guns... <laughs> nope. Nope, there were no submarine guns, but there were submachine guns, explosives, and even rocket-propelled grenades. Holy shit, terrorists. Where did you get all this stuff? On the 4th of Jan... I'm gonna guess the Soviets. That's just a guess. On the 4th of January 1982, officers arrested two brigade members in Rome next to the Spanish steppes. They were heavily armed, ready to launch an attack. On the 9th, police arrested former Professor Sensani, leader of the Roman Column, and considered by the press to be the most bloodthirsty leader amongst the Red Brigades. Five other Roman brigadists were arrested shortly afterwards while hiding in the countryside. Improta's men finally reached a breakthrough in early January. One of their patrols in Padua stopped and searched a 20-year-old man, Paolo Galati, and drove him to Verona for questioning. According to one source, Galati had been arrested by total chance. He had stopped, been stopped for a random check and turned out to be in possession of 20 grams of hashish. That's a lot of hashish. He was taken to a police station and he promised to reveal details on the Doja case in exchange for his release. According to another source, Galati had been intentionally arrested by Amprata's team. He was the younger brother of a brigade member already in custody. As such, he may have been part of their logistical support network. Whatever the reasons for his arrest, Galati cooperated. He revealed the names of Elisabetta Arcangeli, a supporter of the Venetia Column. Amprata's men raided her flat and found her in bed with her boyfriend, Reguero Volle. Oh my god. Gosh, that is a name and a half. Even Arnaldo's pronunciation guides. Can you see that? He puts them in yellow for me. That is a beast. Let's just say boyfriend. Easy. As soon as he saw the columns, the boyfriend declared himself a political prisoner. It was tantamount to a confession. Von Nina was part of the Red, Red Brigades. The couple were taken to the Verona HQ for questioning. According to one source, they agreed to cooperate after receiving an offer of reduced sentences. According to other sources, Improta left them in the care of Officer Siosia. Chocha. Thank you, Chocha. Now, this Chocha was known by a nickname which could be translated as Professor McTorment, a nickname he earned allegedly by practicing torture on his prisoners. Holy shit, you don't want to be interrogated by that guy. <laughs> ah, 
especially if you're a terrorist they're probably like really low down his list of people that he shouldn't that he shouldn't torture so either with the carrot or a very very vicious stick uh violinia confessed he had been one of the drivers who had taken doja to the safe house in padua that was a massive breakthrough improta had an address via pindamonte number two first floor or in american terms the second floor uh wait second floor number two first floor or in american terms second floor wait oh yeah of course of course i totally forgot about that in america it's like the ground floor is one like you go and it's like yeah one you're on floor one it's like nah that's the that's floor one this is ground which is weird and then also sometimes you don't have 13 you're in a lift and there's no 13. it's like really (laughs) it's just superstition people really mind about living on the 13th floor it was time to launch a raid the raid On the 28th of January 1982 at 5am, Improta drove to Via Pindamonte. Captain Perna of the NOCS, the SWAT team, was with him. Perna was charged with inspecting the entrance door to the flat on the first floor. That's where Doji was being held. If the door was armored, the captain knew that they'd have to use explosives. Perna waited until 9am. Then he and a female officer entered the building, pretending to be husband and wife. They paid a visit to the dentist practice across the landing. Discreetly, the captain checked the door. It wasn't armored. A strong shoulder would suffice to take it down. It was decided the NOCS would raid the flat that very morning. Improta and his officers surrounded the building and sealed off the road, disguised as construction workers. Some of them took to operating jackhammers and other heavy machinery to disguise the sounds of the police operation. Unbeknownst to them, this detail actually alerted the terrorists inside the apartment. One of them peered out of the window and noticed an alarming detail. A police patrol driving by a road worker who was carrying a gun. The patrol did not stop the armed worker. It could mean only one thing the worker was one of them you wouldn't conceal that gun if you were like pretending to be a worker on a road as part of a police operation you wouldn't like tuck it under your coat or something like that the cops were surrounding them was this the start of a long siege or worse by 11:30 a.m captain perner had assembled his six best officers clad in black jumpsuits and balaclavas silently they climbed the stairs to the first floor the largest of the team 120 kilograms of muscle takes position by the door we'll call him the ram the ram and the captain lock eyes the captain raises his hands fingers outstretched as he initiates a countdown three the ram takes a step back two almost time to go one at 11:36, amelia's world comes crashing down at 11:36, the entrance door bursts open under the weight of the ram the hinges give way and the wooden slab falls into the hallway crushing the house cat he will not survive oh no <laughs> this is like the the terrorists have a cat a second NOCS runs into the flat. He's confronted by an armed terrorist, but the officer doesn't give him a chance. One single punch and the brigade man is knocked out cold. The rest of the squad bursts in like a storm. Amelia and the others are, others are apprehended, immobilized, and handcuffed one by one in a matter of seconds. Except for one. One of the captors is inside the tent, and he's holding a 765 pistol to the head of Doja. Will he shoot? Will he take the decision that may spark a popular uprising? The man hesitates for a second too long. The ram dashes into the tent and whacks him in the head with the butt of his Beretta. NOCS number two grabs the terrorist by the neck and sends him flying across the room. Doja is safe. These SWAT guys are surprisingly restrained. Like, I don't know how SWAT works in real life, but I imagine, like, every movie I've seen, it would just be like, yeah, 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 they, they break down the door. The first guy's shot in the face. The guy holding the gun shot in the face. Everyone gets shot in the face uh, and dies. There's no arrests. <laughs> 
It's just death. But consider his perspective. A bunch of guys with balaclavas are barged in to have a fistfight with more guys in balaclavas. Are these the good guys, or is this a rival brigade's column who've come to execute him? I don't know. If I was in that situation, I'd be like, uh, I don't know. I'm being held captive by people who might kill me. I'd be like, well, any sort of interact this is probably better. It's probably a good thing. I'd be disappointed if it turned out they were also terrorists and the terrorists were fighting other terrorists. The general retreats to the back of the tent and tries to push the officers outside of his canopy. Only when NOCS number two takes his mask off, Dozier realizes the police have saved the day, saved his day. The general stands up and hugs the policeman. The raid had lasted barely 90 seconds. After 42 days of captivity, and 42 days of captivity are now in the past. He was held for 42 days? Damn. The beginning of the end. Italian police arrested five individuals, three men and two women, found inside of the flat. Four of them, including the leader Emilio, agreed to cooperate with authorities in exchange for reduced sentences. Their sentences initially ranged between 12 and 16 years and a half, but they were later commuted on appeal to four and nine years. This may appear to be excessive leniency on the side of the authorities, but it did pay off. By acting on the leads and confessions provided by four terrorists, the police proceeded to a vast campaign of roundups, leading to the arrest of over 200 Red Brigade members. Now, I guess their cell structure didn't work too well, did it? This was almost fatal blow to the Marxist outfit that had once terrorized authorities and common citizens. A new Red Brigade outfit known as the Communist Combatant Party serviced in 1984, but they never reached the operational intensity of their predecessor. Their last offense took place in relatively recent times. In May 1999, the combatants murdered Massimo D'Antona, an advisor to the Ministry of Labor. In March 2002, they killed his colleague, Marco Biaggi. One year later, this new outfit met its demise on the 2nd of March 2003 when their leader, Mario Galesi, engaged in a firefight with the police on a train in Tuscany. <laughs> Some Mission Impossible shit right there. Firefight on a train? Galesi and police sergeant Manuel Petri died in the incident. So, one could say that the kidnapping of General Dozier was one of the most brazen actions of the Red Brigades, but also the beginning of their end. As per their former prisoner, he recovered just fine from the ordeal, although his hearing was damaged by the onslaught of hard rock. I like to think that he suffered a stiff neck too from all of the headbanging. Good lord, listening to music so loud that it damages your hearing for such a long period of time? That's got to be not fun. General Dozier is 90 at the time, he's still alive, legends at the time of writing, and likes to catch up with his liberators once a year on the anniversary of the raid. We wish him many more happy reunions. Yeah, what a legend. Dismembered bourgeois hetero appendices. Number 1. After the raid, police found some interesting paperwork belonging to the terrorists. For example, their expense report. Apparently, also Red Brigades claimed expenses from their line managers. One item referred to the purchase of Doja's tracksuit. According to the entry, it cost the equivalent of $50. <laughs> it's like terrorist expense reports. What do you mean? AK-47. Tracksuit. Uh, <laughs> balaclava. Dozier later found out that his tracksuit had a price tag on it. It actually cost $14, as he commented, So I guess once a crook, always a crook, because they sure were ripping off their headquarters. Number two. Remember McGonagall, the psychic? When his report was McGonagall, the eagle dude with the strange name and strange job. When his report was considered by top brass at the DIA, it was too late. The raid had already taken place. In February 1982, Dozier was invited to a briefing session with the Grill Flame team. This was the opportunity for him to check McGonagall's reports to uh, see whether they corresponded to the real circumstances of his kidnapping. The briefing session is documented in a CIA declassified memo, but Dozier's comments have been redacted. We'll never know with certainty if McGonagall's psychic leads were reliable. Yet yeah, we will. They weren't. 
3. When researching this episode, I had the chance to read many interviews with General Dozier and his wife, Judy. Both come across as charming and friendly individuals, with a great sense of humor, who had braved adversity with a positive outlook. When discussing details of his ordeals, Dozier commented on the hard rock pumped into his ears. Quote, As a result, my hearing is a little bit more impaired than it had been as a result of listening to tank guns, so I guess there's a message there somewhere. Yeah, you look after your hearing, guys. Don't listen to music too loud. When describing his scuffle with the terrorist plumber, he had no problems in admitting he took a sound beating. His description matches most accounts of the kidnapping, except for one. According to journalist Nicola Rao, after the terrorist pistol-whipped Dozier, he immediately retaliated by headbutting him on the nose. As the terrorist fell to the floor, the general was immediately upon him, punching him repeatedly. He stopped only when he saw Mario pointing a gun to Judy's head. This version is probably unreliable, but I confess that the idea of a supposed victim headbutting an armed terrorist filled me with glee for a good two days. If General Dozier or one of his relatives are listening to this episode, please kindly confirm in the comments if this is what happens. And even if it didn't, it's okay to lie to us. Because, I don't know, are the guys already a legend? And that would just make it even more... Anyway, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, I'm glad that the guy was like, how rare is it that the victim of one of these is still alive? I love it. Uh, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for watching or listening. However you get this show, if you are listening, review would be amazing. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your show. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, like button, subscribe. Why not, eh? Leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing. And thank you for watching or listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.